Hey, welcome back to another episode of Keeping Cozy. Today I'm speaking with Irish philosopher and professor Richard Kearney. Professor Kearney was my professor of philosophy at Boston College, but outside of that, he's taught at the Sorbonne in France, as well as the University College of Dublin in Ireland. Today we speak about the philosophy of the internet and the importance of unimportant majors. Thanks for your time and watching, and if you like it, please be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Enjoy. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming to the podcast, Professor. How have you been keeping? Very good, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so I wanted to start by just having you like walk through your career a little bit. I know it's been very distinguished, but for some of our viewers and listeners who may not have you know, come across your work before. Hmm. Well, I began my studies in Ireland at University College Dublin, where I became very interested in European philosophy in particular. Uh, the sort of contemporary philosophy of imagination, metaphor, symbol, myth. And this took me actually to study first uh, my master's degree with Charles Taylor in Canada, in McGill University, and then from there to Paris, where I worked with um, contemporary French philosophers like uh, Paul Ricoeur and Emmanuel Levinas and Jacques Derrida on my doctorate and then published a number of works on the philosophy of imagination um, and applied it to uh, various disciplines, um, including literature, film, politics, and of course, naturally philosophy itself. Yeah. So um, more recently, I have sort of developed the philosophy of imagination in, in the direction of a, uh, an interpretation of religious um, symbols and practices and narratives and uh, more recently still towards what I call carnal hermeneutics or a philosophy yeah. of touch. Mm, yeah and that's definitely what I want to talk to you about a little bit later in the podcast mm -hmm. but I'd love to talk a little bit about just how you started to become established as a philosopher and as a professor. Well I started uh, teaching first of all in actually in Dublin after I finished my doctorate in Paris, I returned to Dublin. I'm a native of Ireland and um, taught there for actually 21 years before moving to Boston, uh, where I currently uh, hold a chair of philosophy, the Seelig Chair of Philosophy in uh, Boston College. Yeah. And then I have a question just for, you know, viewers who may be interested in entering academia. How mm -hmm. competitive is it towards becoming a professor, you know, a full professor? Is that something that is a lifetime aspiration or... Is it something that, you know, you can still have a successful career in academia without it? You can. Uh, you know, it was much easier in the past and indeed even in my day to get academic positions. Nowadays, there's a big emphasis on sort of practical subjects in the United States, largely due to the fact that, you know, one pays for one's education. Unlike Europe, where I grew up, I got my my PhD free working with the best philosophers in the world in Paris yeah. at the time in the 1970s and 80s. But that's different here. Um, so, you know, a lot of young people taking degrees nowadays will do philosophy with something else, marketing, business, yeah. computer science, um, education, something practical and vocational because yeah. the academic positions are actually very competitive nowadays. But my own belief is that to do philosophy prepares you for everything and for nothing. Yeah. You will never regret it. And, um, you know, to have an MA, even an advanced degree, a master's or a PhD in philosophy is, I think, something very coveted. Uh, you know, even people going into Microsoft or going to yeah. publishing 
or the diplomatic corps, you know, there's uh, politics, you know, uh, um, civil service, a degree in philosophy is very, very highly considered, even though yeah. you won't be doing philosophy per se, but it's considered that you'd be pretty all round in your approach to your subject, you'll have a certain wisdom about it, you'll be aware of, you know, the history of, 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 of ideas, the history of culture, yeah, in a way that somebody just studying a very, you know, practical, technical subject might not be. Yeah, and some of the, you know, some of our guests and some of the most, you know, accomplished people in tech, especially, have all, you know, cited philosophy as their, you know, the, the major they would tell their kids to focus on if they mm -hmm. weren't were to go to college. Or, you know, Peter Thiel, who's a huge Facebook investor, was a philosophy major, as well as this guy we had on the last episode of the podcast, Jim Rogers, studied philosophy at Oxford, and he became mm -hmm. a very successful investor. So I'm sure that there is practical, you know, uses towards this somewhat you know, people talk about how impractical the philosophy major is, but yeah. yeah, there is practical uses. Well, it's precisely because it's ostensibly impractical, useless, <laughs> non-productive. I mean, this even comes up, you know, comes up and going back, you know, two and a half thousand years to Plato. At the same time, that frees you to question things in a in a liberal manner, in yeah. a free manner. Um, and you know, just to, to to mention my own country, you know, the last three presidents of Ireland have have have. PhDs in philosophy. The current um, president of France, uh, Macron, has yeah. a PhD in philosophy, studied with the same philosophers I did, Paul Ricoeur. So it's an interesting connection that the most impractical sometimes turns out to be, yeah. in practice, uh, very, very effective and very transformative. Yeah, and the number one major for people who are in the 1% uh, in the United States economically is actually art history, which I uh, found to be pretty interesting. Yeah, equally yeah. relevant and impractical. Yeah. But yeah. again, you know, the cultured mind. I mean, when the university was being founded, Archbishop uh, Henry Newman um, wrote a book called The Idea of the University. This was, uh, well, the, the Irish and British universities at the time mm. in the, in the uh, 20, 19th century. And he said there are two kinds of approaches. There are what he called the artes serviles, kind of what we would call the natural sciences nowadays, you know, the practical sciences, yeah. the hard sciences, and then the, the artes liberales. And they were the impractical sciences, uh, the what we today would call the arts. Yeah. But he said you you actually need both, and uh, one cannot, in spite of the emphasis in our contemporary culture on the industrial and the technological and the economic and the mercantile. He said it 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 uh, you know it's a grave grave error to think you can dispense with the with the liberal arts. Yeah, with, uh, yeah, the humanities. Yeah, no, and they I, make I, us I, human. They make us humane. Yeah, no, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, I was a marketing and philosophy guy, so I, you know, hopefully we'll, you know, follow the track of these great philosophers we've mentioned. Well, but I kind of now running a podcast. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully, hopefully it becomes, you know, a big podcast. But um, going back to specifically, um, you know, your your teaching stuff. How have you found teaching during COVID to be? uh mixed uh, and in fact my teaching has been mixed in you know, what they call a hybrid that is a mix of in-person and uh, zoom yeah uh, my big class is zoom and uh, my smaller grad class of sort of 10 students 10 graduate doctoral students is um and master's students is uh, is in person but you know with masking and social distance and so on and so forth now i personally prefer um the in-person yeah. Um, but I obviously see the the absolute necessity for a big class to be, you know, um, 
to be long distance as they call it online yeah um, and uh, there are certain there are certain advantages to that in that I can record on Panopto and Canvas yeah. my my lectures and then the student you know instead of having to come to class on a certain day can listen to it at any time during the week and then post their reflection at the end of it and you know so there, there, there are advantages to certainly for a big class having that sort of freedom and then I check in with the students synchronously as it's called in a live zoom session once a week where they can ask questions about their reading so it works yeah. pretty well but you know nothing replaces the in-person um, class where I hope you know once the vaccine comes on on, on uh, com comes uh, into 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 process comes on stream that we will get back to live classes although I think there'll always be an element of zoom from now on that's the culture we live in yeah um but you know it's it's the accidents that can occur when you're in a live class with people it's the reading of faces it's the yeah the the, the intonation the, you know the silences the chemistry between different people in the class that sometimes go unknown. That's what I call carnal hermeneutics. The body picks it up. Teaching is embodied as much yeah. as it, it, it is mental. We are not disincarnate beings, even though we live in what I call an increasingly excarnate age. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're, we're born to be in a body. And um, so it's important to, to preserve in our culture a commons of the body as well as a connectivity of yeah. the World Wide Web. You know, we and, need uh, both. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast specifically, because I think that, you know, you've written a book about touch and the importance of touch and the importance of being a little bit more of a physically connected community. But we're yes. now living in a pandemic, which firstly, you know, we need to be, you know, physically distanced, socially distanced. But then also, um, do you think this is exasperating like the phenomena that you kind of touch on with, you know, how we are moving away from being a personal society to an online, you know, Internet digital mm. society? You know, yes and no. Uh, yes, in the evident sense that we're obviously working more from home. We're communicating more online than ever before. But in so doing, I think we have become aware by virtue of the crisis of the absence of touch, more aware of touch. It's like, you know, what Martin Heidegger says in the existential say about death. Um, it's when you become aware of, of death as the possibility of your non-being that you actually come to appreciate being and that you raise the question of being. There's sort of a tradition in a lot of wisdom, wisdom traditions and cultures that it's, it's learning to die before you die that actually enables you to live well. So a lot of the initiation rites, mystery rites, religious rites, mythological rites were actually about going into the dark, you know, what, what uh, the Aborigines called the walkabout, what uh, the Christian mystics and the Jewish mystics called the dark night of the soul, what the Islamic, um, you know, sages and the Sufis called, you know, um, faka, fana, fana, the annihilation, that through an appreciation of non-being, the existential would say your own personal non-being as, as that which will happen when you die, <laughs> yeah. um, but which is happening all the time because we're always being towards death, that actually is not morbid necrophilia or nihilism. It's a way of becoming more aware of, of, of being. So in the pandemic, when we were deprived of touch, we suddenly became aware more than yeah. ever before of what maybe before we took for granted was how much we actually need to hug. How when we touch a, 
a doorknob, you know, 20 people have touched that doorknob before you, you don't even notice it. How suddenly when you have to be nine feet away from people, you realize how close you are to people most of the time. And what an important need that is. And, uh, you know, tragically for many, those in nursing homes and so on, who were dying yeah. and they weren't able to be with their family. And they had to come and look, you know, their family and loved ones have to look at them through a window. But the longing for touch, and even the healthcare workers would say this, and when people were dying of COVID, they would cry yeah. out for touch. The most important thing that the nurses and doctors could do was actually to touch them with their protective gear and so on, but to actually hold them and touch them. So yeah. I think that's that's very important, that, that how we became aware more than ever before of the importance of the tactile in our lives. Yeah. And just playing off of that, you know, you have this, I think you're the first person I've heard who's mentioned this idea of excarnation. And it's kind of a play on the idea of incarnation, which is image becoming flesh. Mm -hmm. Excarnation is flesh becoming image. So could you talk a little bit about that with also, you know, paying respect to the fact that some people may not understand the philosophical idea of image? Well, philosophical idea of image is not that different from the way we use image. Uh, that is to say, it is um, presenting something in its absence, right? Yeah. I imagine my friend in Dublin. I'm in Boston. I imagine my friend in Dublin. My friend um, Sean is 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 present to my mind's eye, uh, and even in a way that can be very moving. You know, if I'm missing my friend, I could weep. Uh, uh, yeah. If I think yeah. of his sense of humor, I might laugh. It can really affect me. But it is in and through uh, an image that I have that, what Sartre calls a magical incantation or invocation of an absence through a presence. Yeah. So that goes right back to the beginning of time when, you know, the hunter-gatherers went to a cave and painted the bison or the, you know, the elk on the cave. The idea being that by, by somehow representing the absent animals in images, it would bring about, a, a, you know, a happy hunt that they would bring the animals into presence by invoking them through their absence in images. Yeah. And and when people died, think of even Tutankhamun, the pharaohs, when they were buried, you know, three, four, five thousand years ago by, by, by the Egyptians, they were painted on the sarcophagus, uh, the, the coffins, were their images. People were buried with effigies, representations, statues. The, the implication being that by preserving the person through an image, they would somehow uh, be preserved in life. So that's the, the, the role Idea, of the image, going right yeah. back to the beginning of time. Now, in our own day, of course, it's the digital image, it's the technological image. Yeah. Um, but it's still the miracle of absence in presence, except yeah. instead of it being confined either to our dreams at night, when, of course, we're, we're, we're inhabiting our images uh, coming from the unconscious and the invisible, but but also, you know, are being confined to churches where there were religious images or museums yeah. where there are artistic images. Now we have images all the time uh, through our screens. You know, I mean, Americans, as Time magazine put uh, recorded, um, you know, Americans check their iPhones a billion times a day. Yeah. You know, the figures are absolutely astounding. I mean, Facebook has two, two, two billion members. Yeah. Um, YouTube 1.5, yeah. uh, Instagram 88 million, Snapshot 250 million, and so on. TikTok even more and counting. Yeah. So we're living in in an age of hyper connectivity through the image. Yeah. So the question is, that's wonderful. We can connect with anybody anywhere in the world, but what does it mean to our sense of embodied existence? That's the question. Yeah. And it's not a matter of throwing out technology. 
of getting yeah. rid of the digital image for the sake of the digital fingerprint of the hand. I mean, it's interesting that digital means both our handprint yeah, originally and yeah. now the digital okay. image is digital code. But we need both. The, yeah. the question is, how do we live in both? And we have existed hitherto in an Anthropocene, as it's called, you know, in, in, in the contemporary parlance, where the human and the anthropos, uh, the anthropological has dominated nature and the world and, 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 and life. And now we have come to a crisis with pandemics, with the yeah. climate crisis, with, you know, economic and industrial collapse and the whole carbon crisis where we have to have a new relationship to the non-anthropological world, to the, yeah. to the natural world, the animal world, the, 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 the cosmic world. And this is what I call a symbiocene from the yeah. Greek symbiosis that we've got to work in connection with. So we don't get rid of our technology, our digital technology, but how do we bring our digital technology, which is very dominated by sight as a controlling sense, yes. uh, into a symbiocene where we also relate the visual to the tactile and yeah. where instead of having single sensation, which we have through a computer screen or a digital image, we have what I call double sensation. When, 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 as Aristotle said, you know, two and a half thousand years ago in the first human psychology that we know of in Western thought, when the hand touches something, it's also as it's tactile, it's, it, it's tangible. Yeah. That when you, when your hand touches your hand, you are touching and being touched at the same time. It's double sensation. Now, that is the condition of us as incarnate beings. The danger is in a digital age dominated by the visual image, what's called yeah. optocentric image, that we have single sensation. We're doing the controlling as, for example, in video games or where we can create cities, a pornography where we can have whatever sexual fantasies exercise at our will and so on by paying money and pressing a, a, a a, a key yeah. on your computer, you can have control of all of these experiences. But what do you lose in the process? That's a one way. Yeah. Well, uh, what do you stream. lose? Yeah. What, what, do, is, what, what does one lose? Yeah. Yeah. And it is, I think, the reciprocity principle of not only touching, but being touched. Yeah. And that seems to me to be very important. Of course, we need to keep the digital image, but we also need to supplement it with tactile sensation. Yeah. So just kind of playing off of that, have you heard of this Netflix documentary, um, The Social Dilemma? Yes. So did, did you get a chance to watch it? I did. So, you know, for people who may not have watched it, the central theme is this idea that the social media companies like Facebook, you know, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, all of the ones that you mentioned previously, they are, you know, as much as they claim to be, you know, the anti-evil corporations are doing things that'll keep us on their platform more and more. And they're trying to take our data to get us to stay on more to, you know, help get increased revenue for yeah. themselves. Could mm -hmm. you, you know, perhaps reflect on what's going on with that? Well, those guys know their know their business. <laughs> um, as you know, having seen the social network, I think everybody should see it. To my mind, it's perhaps um, well, it, it's it's prophetic in one sense that it is arguing not to get rid of technology, but to have what what one of the directors calls a humane technology, right? Yeah. Um, so I would argue that through technology, we should have the visual, of course, we should keep that, but we should also have the haptic, you know, the the, the tactile. So we should extend its um, its possibilities to be more in connection, in real connection with our lived experience. So I would say in that respect, humane technology is a technology that is also open to the message of redemption through reconnection. 
with yeah. with the lived world, which you find, for example, in a video game like Death Stranding. Sometimes, you know, it's a hair of the dog that bit you. We can find in in TV series like Black Mirror and Westworld, um, or movies like The Truman Show, or yeah, yeah. Ex Machina, or Her, the use of digital technology or The Truman Show to actually interrogate the limits and the potential, but also the dangers of digital technology. You know, and, and all of the, 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 the popular cultural uh, programs that I've just cited, whether they, whether yeah, they yeah. be video games or TV series or, or, or movies, are all saying to us, be careful with the very idiom we're now, and medium we're now using, we're now yeah. deploying, because we could get caught in a labyrinth with no way out. Yeah. So that's important to be able to use the technology, but not abuse it. Yeah. Um, to be able to reuse it in a way that keeps us in connection with the real, a real lived experience. That's the big challenge. Yeah. And I, I like how you've been touching on the positive aspects of technology, because for me, I, I think a lot of people who criticize technology think of it perhaps in the, you know, like this is this apocalyptic thing that we're doing, like they think of it being we're creating our own matrix. And for me, I think of it as kind of we are Icarus and we've left the tower and it's our choice whether or not we fly too close to the sun or start to, yeah. you know, yeah, or land. That's right. It, it is our choice. I mean, the one thing I would say is a possible critique of, of, of social network is that it is a little bit too apocalyptic. Yeah. There is a sense in which, you know, we're, we're all just trapped and, you know, what Chomsky called manufactured consent, you know, that we're, we're almost prefabricated to, to re-feed off the same cycle of data and information and and social platforms and so on. And of course, it's true. If you go on, if you check check out a book, even on Amazon now, and you order a book, and then suddenly, whoop, as you as your order goes through, you get all the other books which yeah. you might like to order, and they know your search history. They know what you've been looking at, and suddenly you say, "Oh my gosh, yeah, I want that. I want that. I want yeah. that." Or you look at a video clip that somebody sends you, and then as you're looking at it, then six other alternatives come up, and again, they know what you want before yeah. you know what you want, so to speak. But I agree with you. That doesn't preclude uh, human choice. We have a choice to become addicted to that because it is addictive. You know, everybody yeah. knows first first instinct in the morning. It used to be tea, then it became <sighs> coffee. Yeah. <laughs> for some, it became cocaine, maybe. I don't know. But now it's the internet. Yeah, and for it's sure. reaching for the phone. You know, the, the buzz, the... the, the um, the high, yeah. the quick sensation, the immediate connectivity. Um, so the question is, you know, there's lots of things that have been addictive down through the ages, you know, from, yeah. I don't know, addictive herbs to alcohol to, you know, yeah. power, um, sex. Now it's yeah. the internet. But we have a choice around that. Yeah, you know, but to... I think the distinction is that with the internet, you you have you're competing against these big companies like Facebook, who are paying yeah. the smartest minds in the world to pretty pretty much create ways for us to stay on there and create algorithms to mm. do as you said, like predict what we would want next in a video or whatever. Yeah. Whereas with drugs, you know, the drug is it's it's static. It's not going to try to lure you more than it, it intrinsically can, right? Or same thing with pretty much any other vice, right? Well, I kind of agree with you that the, the digital image is maybe arguably the most addictive substance that has ever been invented by, 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 by the human mind and the human, the human imagination. Um, 
But think about it historically. There's always been technologies. They've just been different. They've been technologies of power. Think of religion, institutional religion, governed by, you know, cardinals, bishops, priests, yeah. priestesses, whatever. And that percolated down into the system. People were then educated through that. If you didn't belong to this particular religion, there was a huge power there too, in terms of a system. You know, and and then you think of political yeah. systems that can power. Power is a is a is a, an addictive substance. So whether it's political or religious or technological, uh, or even the drug industry, you know, I mean, yeah. it, it's fine to think of of uh, drugs as as natural psilocybin growing in nature, you know, which actually good for you. Or marijuana, which argue, arguably is very good for you uh, yeah. for all kinds of medical uses, as we now know, uh, even though there was a huge taboo against it. Uh, but the, the, it, for, for all the good uses of, you know, psychoactive, psychedelic, therapeutic um, pharmacons, pharmaceuticals, yeah. there is the, the pharma industry, which, is, which is, has its own mode of economic sort of neo-capitalist manipulation. Yeah. So I'm not sure that, you know, that that Facebook and, and Microsoft and whatnot have a, you know, a premium or a, a, a prerogative on, in terms of addictive manipulation. I, yeah. I think it's something basic to the human mind, but, and to the human being. Uh, but I think while we're more aware of what the pharmaceutical industry or let's say um, a, 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 an ideological industry is doing yeah. to us politically, religiously, culturally, whatever, we, we seem to be more naive because we haven't developed a pedagogy yeah. of digital of digital technology. You know, even if you do computer science now, there's very little philosophizing about what it actually means yeah. or does to your being. It's yeah. much more how does it work? Yeah. Rather than why does it work and how will we, you know, how does it affect our lives? Yeah. And so I guess what would you what would you suggest for these tech companies to do? Should they start hiring philosophy, you know, majors and people and professionals? Absolutely, to just start Jacob. In, in this is where you <laughs> and your 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 contemporaries should all be hired. Yeah. There should be and I think there are in certain instances, you know, people yeah. with a critical questioning conscience that know how it works. They have the savvy. They're not just Luddites saying, oh, you know, we must go back to the Middle Ages or, you know, yeah. the Greeks um, or the Celts where we lived in, at one with nature. No, that's not going to happen. You can't turn back the tide of history or the clock of history. But you can accompany technological advances with a certain detachment, a philosophical critical detachment, which enables you to yeah. question what you're doing, where you're going and why you're going there. Yeah. And that's what's essential to give soul back to, to, yeah. to, to, to technology. And I guess, you know, my final question would be, you know, we talk about this being the age of information yeah. and oftentimes with the, you know, new ages, the age of industrialization, there's a different change in character or spirit amongst the people. I think mm -hmm. this social dilemma kind of touches upon this a little bit with talking about how now the new currency is likes and attention that you get online. Do you think yeah. that has any chance of affecting the way in which you know, our human essences or is, yeah, I guess, you know, you're the philosophy professor. I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, on no, that, how that's, it could change. A, that's a very good question. But you know something, I'm a great believer in the existentialist principle that existence precedes essence. Yeah. And no matter, no matter how defined you are 
and we are defined and conditioned by our DNA, by our unconscious, by our cultural, social, political, religious and technological uh, yeah. formation, we are still free to choose, right? Yeah. And there is no essence that's ever laid down such that we are predetermined unconditionally to follow that dictum. Yeah. Um, we must be aware that we are influenced by, by all of these things and nowhere more than today when uh, we have the technological digital um, network and, and World Wide Web in which we find ourselves, but we are still existences that uh, make ourselves and remake ourselves according to what is given. Sartre had a beautiful line where he says, Paul Valéry, the, the great French modernist poet, was a petty bourgeois Parisian, but not every petty bourgeois Parisian was a Paul Valéry. In other words, how come he, out of the two million people who were petty bourgeois Parisians, you know, at the end of the last century, or yeah. the 19th century, he became a poet, the others became other things. Tinkers and tailors and, and candlestick makers, but that's our choice, you yeah. know, to make of what is given um, something for ourselves and for our community. Yeah. So, do you think, uh, you know, just to end it off, do you think that it's a positive future that we're heading towards, or do you think that it's going to be, you know, we're ending the late, we're entering late stages of uh, human former existence and human former happiness? Well, you know, I think that we have certainly entered a crisis. There's no doubt about it. I mean, particularly the the climate crisis, you know, this is yeah. absolutely the most important of all. But just think of it, within a matter of days or weeks, we will be, uh, certainly months, we will be back working with responsible governments throughout the world in, the, in terms of the Paris Climate Agreement. Yeah. I think the, we will have a vaccine yeah, for the yeah. pandemic. Uh, we will have rethought our modes of pedagogy yeah. to say, okay, we can do everything by Zoom now, but is that actually the be all and the end all of education? Yeah. Or do we need to accompany that with a re-embodiment yeah. of the pedagogical relationship once again? But I do think that the crisis brought about by COVID-19 is one that has challenged us to rethink where we are going. There really was yeah. a pause button put on for the best part of, of, of nine months or a year. You know, the gestation period of nine months, we have been pregnant with possibilities that could be either utterly horrific or in some respects, maybe, maybe salvific. And it's a, it's a double birth uh, and, and it's up to us how, how we develop, you know, the Siamese twins in one direction yeah. or another. And in specifically related to technology and social media and whatnot, do you think we're going to end up like Icarus and fly too close to the sun or will we land on our feet? I personally think that we can land on our feet, but some will, will fly too close to the sun and we will, spell, we will smell burning wings in, in, <laughs> in the years and the months ahead, yeah. but not everybody. There will be, there'll be a Noah's Ark that'll, that'll yeah. get us to another place, I do believe. <laughs> well, thank you for your time, Professor, and I hope you have a good finals period. And by the way, can I just add something? In sure. Noah's Ark, in Noah's Ark, there are animals as well as humans. And that's very important. The interspecies reciprocity principle. We can never save ourselves without, at the same time, in double sensation, touching and being touched by the non-human world. Yeah. And that we have forgotten at our peril. And that's going to be part of our salvation, if there is one. Of the Reconnecting yeah. with the lived interspecies world. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for your time. Uh, you know, I think you're one of the great professors I had when I was at BC. I am curious to know how you're able to have so many thoughts and still operate within, you know, the real world where most of us, you know, including myself are, you know, thinking about not that much. Um, but yeah, thank you for your time. It's been a great pleasure, Jacob. Thank you. Have a good one, Professor. Take care. You too. You too. Bye-bye.